Clem Song Sparrow Farm and Nursery grows extraordinary herbaceous perennials, uncommon trees and shrubs, and a selection of luxurious peonies. Song Sparrow Nursery is a proud underwriter of Kendrew's Real Dirt. Songsparrow.com, S-O-N-G-S-P-A-R-R-O-W.com. Underwriting also provided by Plant Skid, Deer and Rabbit Repellent, the first repellent to be listed organic by the Organic Materials Review Institute. Plant Skid is Swedish for plant protection and now comes with a plant protection guarantee. For details, www.plantskid.com. P-L-A-N-T-S-K-Y-D-D. Hello and welcome. It's Ken Drews, and you're listening to Ken Drews Real Dirt, the Garden Show. And today we're going to talk about what has to be America's favorite blossom, the rose. And I have as my guest Doug Brenner, who's the author of a new book, A Rose by Any Name. And Doug former is the former editor of Garden Design Magazine and was editor-in-chief of Martha Stewart Living Magazine. And he's the co-author with Stephen Scaniello of this new book. And next week we're going to have Stephen Scaniello, America's favorite rosarian, rose grower, on as our guest. And today it's Doug. And I'm going to talk to Doug about roses, the names of roses, who grows in our gardens, and also about publishing. As, a, as an editor for many years, he really knows about garden publishing and publishing, and I can't wait to speak with him. And we won't have to because he's going to be with us just about now. I'm speaking with Doug Brenner, who is the co-author of A Rose by Any Name. And Douglas Brenner is the former editor-in-chief of Martha Stewart Living Magazine and editor of Garden Design. Hello, Doug. Hi, Ken. I'm calling you Doug because I know you, Doug. Oh, yes. That's, that's, but on the book, it says, it says Douglas Brenner and Stephen Scaniello. And I'm hoping that we get to talk to Stephen in the coming weeks about roses. But I want to talk to you about, well, about editing, publishing, and a rose by any name. And as I look at the book, and well, first when I looked at the cover, I thought the book might be, you know, who was named for what rose was named after what person. But it's so much more. It's... It's really fascinating stories of, what is it, some 48 different roses? Well, actually, it's 48 roses that each have a chapter named after them, but there are more than 1,200 roses that are actually mentioned in the book. So there are a lot more than 48 stories in there. And really what we, the, the, the reason for that is we, we didn't want this to be just a sort of, uh, just a reference book where you simply look up a name and get a, a you know, a, a little potted etymology of where that name came from. But, but something much more, really, in, in, instead of a, just a horticultural history, we really wanted it to be a, a cultural history of the rose, not just in the past, but also what roses mean to people today. And the important thing, I think, here is people, because um, it's really, it's a flower that has meant so many different things to so many different cultures and peoples, uh, you know, plural, because it, it really, they're, you know, there are roses associated with the Virgin Mary, and there are roses associated with the Prophet Muhammad, and Rose lore goes from China all the way around the globe, and right. and sorry, go go on. Yeah. No, I was just saying that the, I, as you're saying that, I'm realizing roses are pan-global. You know, they're everywhere in the temperate regions, probably in trop, sub, subtropical too. They are, yes, 
Actually, one of the oldest known roses is actually is called the Holy Rose of Abyssinia, and um, it's a rose that was uh, connected to a, a, a very early um, Christian uh, um, preacher, well, a, a priest, really, uh, in Africa. But the, the rose itself has been found in tombs in, in ancient, from ancient Egypt, where, because roses have always, you know, we think of them as a symbol of new life, but they've also, in many places, had a, a special meaning as a memorial for, for those who have died. Well, these are roses and people, just as you were saying, because obviously roses are, there must be fossil records of roses as well, dating back before people. Yep, yep. But then, of course, you have a rose like Barbara Streisand, yeah, uh, really. <laughs> which it shows that roses are very much among people in the here and now, too. Well, and, when, you, uh, when you say a rose like Barbara Streisand, I think, well, that must be a voluptuous and uh, commanding presence rose. It, it is, and uh, it's, uh, it's unlike a lot of celebrity roses, which, I mean, many of them are just sort of publicity ploys for the people who grow roses, and they, they call up some some actor or TV personality and say, hey, is it okay if we name a rose after you? Would you sign on the dotted line? And usually the other person says, oh, sure, fine, and that's it. But um, Barbara Streisand, of course, being the perfectionist that she is, and also someone who's a very, very keen gardener. I mean, she has more than a 1,000 rose bushes mm. in her garden. So when it was suggested to her that a rose be named for her, she wasn't just going to take any old rose, <laughs> and she actually, she virtually auditioned three different roses. One of them was a very pale pinkish white, sort of a, like a blushing white. One of them was a pretty powerful red that, if you flip the petal over, was yellow on the other side, Ooh. sort of like a dress with a wild lining to it. And the third one was a, a a very sort of sultry purplish rose, but she said she insisted on growing all three of those in her own garden for two whole years, so she could see how they performed uh, in the in the garden sense. Yeah. And uh, she eventually decided herself that she wanted the 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 lavender, the purple one, to be her rose, and it actually. In stage appearances after that, she would make sure that a bouquet of those roses was was there on stage with her. And I, the last time I checked her website a couple of years ago when I was working on the early stages of the book, I, I saw that rose there with her. Uh, and she had good reason to do this because there have been some other celebrity roses that really fizzled. Um, mm. There, There was... A rose that was named for Judy Garland. It was a, 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 an orange and yellow uh, floribunda that was that fans of hers had named after her after she had died, and um, it turned out to be not the world's greatest growing rose. And and Stephen knew some people in Brooklyn who planted some in a in a Judy Garden Garland fan garden. And as he puts it, they had to use controlled substances of the horticultural <laughs> sort to keep those roses anywhere near healthy. And they, they finally had to replace them with something else. What a story. <laughs> You're making yeah. me think the whole time of the Dolly Parton rose. I can just picture what that might well, be like. Well, it is just the way you'd think it would be. Although Dolly Parton, unlike uh, Barbara Streisand, does not actually garden, apparently 
she is too worried about her fingernails to get <laughs> anywhere close to, to the, the dirt or a, a trowel. Uh, of course, there are other roses where the rose itself is really a terrific plant. There's a beautiful, uh, the President Herbert Hoover rose. It, it's a sort of uh, soft um, orange and pink. It's a hybrid tea. Very, very lovely rose and very, it grows beautifully. But it was uh, had the misfortune of being introduced in 1929. Oh, I mean, no. Herbert Hoover was still the president then, but of course, his his stock went way down fast, along with that on Wall Street and uh, the rose itself. It had been a it was a very popular rose when it first came out because it was so beautiful. But throughout the depression, the poor Herbert Hoover rose got dug up in gardens from coast to coast. And uh, it's still around, but it uh, it had a sad fate. Oh, well, that's very, very unlike the American Beauty Rose, which I think the name became bigger than the rose itself. Yes, it did. Yeah, the American Beauty Rose itself is a which was introduced in the 1880s as American Beauty. In fact, like a lot of roses, it's its patriotic meaning is it has a somewhat dubious origin because in fact it's really a french rose uh, mm. but anyway it was yeah it's a, it was a rose that really it was very expensive it was a real status symbol but one of the reasons why it was so expensive was it was so finicky and so hard they really had to be grown in in greenhouses um i inherited what i was told was an american beauty rose when i bought my house uh, near the New Jersey shore back, oh, well, in 1984, almost 100 years after the original American Beauty came out. And uh, a neighbor, it was a 90-some-year-old neighbor who'd been the best friend of the lady who lived here who told me that it was American Beauty. And, and she told me a nice story about it. It was, it was planted by the um, father of her friend. He was a conductor on the railroad that went down from New York to Atlantic City and went right down the middle of our street, in fact. At one time, it's no longer there. Hmm. And he was an Irish immigrant, and he had planted this American beauty because he was so proud to be an American. And he thought of his daughter as his American beauty, and when she became a school teacher in Atlantic City, he would get, this is after he was retired, he would get a friend of his on the railroad when they made a stop here in town. He would go over with a box of fresh-cut roses from that bush outside the window, and he would send it to his daughter. But I'd always wondered about my American Beauty because it didn't seem quite like the um, descriptions I'd read of the original one. And uh, I found out eventually that it is climbing American Beauty, which oh. is a, a child of American Beauty, but was bred with another one that gave it some you know, better uh, physical traits. It, it's, it has survived even my sort of lackluster care here and there. <laughs> Uh, but it um, it was pl- they and it came out in 1909. That is, you know, that was the year it was introduced in nurseries, and which was the very year that these people had bought the house that I now live oh. in. So they must have bought the newest rose on the block, right. and so they were very very proud of it. Well, I have photographs of it too, back in oh, around the original beginning days. of the First World War, oh, with the, this young woman who became the school teacher. She was still a teenager and leaning out the window with her nose, you know, facing towards one of these big, blousy roses. And they are, when they're in their full bloom, they are really spectacular. And they're fragrant. They are. They because have a today, lovely... when, when we go to get an American Beauty, today, it's hardly the same rose. Oh, hardly. There and... are a lot of things called American Beauty which have no 
physical, genealogical, <laughs> or right. other connection to the original American Beauty. And probably yeah. you can buy one today for the same price as one in 1880, but that <laughs> was the real one. Yeah, exactly. Yep. They, uh, the original one has nothing at all to do with the new ones. In fact, the new ones are probably grown. I mean, chances are, are good that the one you buy as an American Beauty of the Florist today was flown in from South America or somewhere else abroad. Right. It has nothing at all to do with America or the original American Beauty. I'm speaking with Douglas Brenner, who's a co-author of A Rose by Any Name, written with Stephen Scaniello, and we will be back in just a moment. You're listening to Ken Drew's Real Dirt, The Garden Show. Plant Skid Animal Repellent is a proud underwriter of Kendrew's Real Dirt. Developed for the forestry industry over 20 years ago, no other product has been so extensively tested for long-term efficacy. For details, www.plantskid.com. P-L-A-N-T-S-K-Y-D-D. Clem's Song Sparrow Farm and Nursery grows extraordinary herbaceous perennials, uncommon trees and shrubs, and a selection of luxurious peonies. Song Sparrow Nursery is a proud underwriter of Kendrew's Real Dirt. Songsparrow.com, S-O-N-G-S-P-A-R-R-O-W.com. Hello and thank you for staying with us. It's Kendrew's, and you're listening to Kendrew's Real Dirt, The Garden Show. And I'm speaking with Douglas Brenner, author of A Rose by Any Name, a new book on roses, which is a read. This is a book you will want to read. These are stories, stories that rival any stories, I think. The stories not only of the world's favorite flower, but of people, of anthropology, of history. Remarkable stories. Doug, thank you for staying with me. Uh, where can we go from here? We talked about religion a little bit. We talked about actresses. <laughs> we talked about singers, performers. Well, you know, something that's sort of at the far end of the spectrum from those in a lot of people's minds and something they may not connect with roses except once a year is uh, it comes to mind with a rose called Tournament of Roses. I mean, mm. There actually is a rose called that. And it was fascinating for me uh, and for Stephen. <laughs> he knows a lot more about roses than I do, uh, being the, having been the head of the Brooklyn Botanic Rose Garden and now being the head of the Heritage Rose Society. Uh, but we found that it all goes back to the end of the 19th century when people in Pasadena were trying to promote that Pasadena and that part of California as a winter resort for people back east. And they decided that what they could use as their sort of publicity ploy was the fact that they had beautiful roses blooming in the middle of winter when people back east were shivering. So they decided to have a parade um, because, of course, uh, there were by that time uh, pictures in the newspapers and they thought it would make a big impression if they had a parade of carriages, which, of course, was what they had at that time. This is before cars with all bedecked with roses. And so that was how it started. Eventually, we, we found wonderful old photographs. In fact, there's one in the book that shows one of the earliest uh, rose parades in Pasadena uh, that uh, was done with some of the first cars, uh, you know, like uh, real tin lizzies with roses tied to the wheels and the steering <laughs> wheels and the ladies have giant hats with roses on them. And then they decided to expand from there and they did things like, well, they had ostrich races uh, with men riding on, on top of ostriches. They had a race between a camel and an elephant. They had a 
they had, oh, for several years, the big hit was gladiator races, uh, you know, chariots and everything, but they turned out to be too expensive. And so they eventually <laughs> settled on football. The first time they tried football, they made, they, they had a game between uh, Stanford, the, the home team for Californians and Michigan. And unfortunately Michigan won and people in California were so upset that they didn't have any football connected with the tournament of roses for quite a few years. Wow. But then they finally, when the chariot races just became, I, I think the insurance <laughs> premiums probably went way out of the line. Well, we don't they think then, about chariot races. And no, tournament of no, roses it was a today. big draw. I think the silent movie, Ben-Hur sure. had come out around then and, uh, so anyway, but that's that's how the whole Rose Bowl tournament of roses uh, began, and uh, and anyway that was. But there are there are roses named for um, quite a few different uh, sports figures. I mean, Chris Everett has a lovely rose named for her. Um, even the uh, the German boxer Max Schmeling had mm-hmm. a, had a rose named for him. Anyway, it's it's an area where I don't think a lot of people think a book about roses would go. They tend to think more of the <laughs> the more conventionally romantic things. And romance, of course, in the book leads uh, inevitably to to sex. Uh, there are stories. Uh, in fact, we, we as the title for the chapter that really goes to what you might call passion in the, the world of roses is called Maiden's Blush, which was the name in England where they always tended to be a bit more puritanical mm-hmm. than people uh, in, on the continent. That was the name for the same rose, which the French called... Um, Cuisse de nymph nu, which means uh, thigh of a uh, an aroused nymph. Uh, it's a maiden's blush to that. <laughs> I see the connection. I can see it. Well, yeah. your new book, A Rose by Any Name, we'll have a link to uh, to purchasing the book on the website. But it does encompass show business, poetry, folklore, fashion, and as I mentioned, Doug Brenner, my guest. Uh, is a former editor-in-chief of Martha Stewart Living Magazine and editor of Garden Design, so I can't resist asking you a little bit about garden book publishing and publishing, because as I look at the new world, and it's new to me, there's 30 media outlets for every one that we had 10 years ago. Yeah, and I wondered if you had some thoughts about where things are going. What's the future? Do you have a crystal ball? <laughs> well, I don't know about the future, but and in some ways, I'm glad I don't, uh, since my own living is partly dependent mm. on it. But uh, I can speak about the recent past and the present, and I think that the most interesting trend, certainly in garden books, before we get to the whole idea of other media, is that. Uh, just as the publishing industry has been worrying about its own sustainability, and, and this was the subject of an article in Publishers Weekly that I read some months ago, uh, surprisingly, a lot of um, publishers, who some who specialize in garden books, others who sell them sometimes, have seen a, a, a dramatic change, uh, really, just in since the year around the year 2000. I mean, there was a there was a real fear at the beginning of this decade that garden books had really had it because all of the sort of coffee table garden books that were seen as the surefire sellers of the 1990s, the things with huge, beautiful pictures of gardens in England and France or villas in Tuscany, um, back when Americans were caught up in the what turned out to be a you know a craze for ornamental gardening that kind of kind of plummeted. Uh, those books were a drug in the market. But 
what has happened in recent years, even as a lot of other categories of publishing have been going down, books about sustainable gardening, especially about gardening that involves edible plants of one sort or another. The kitchen garden has really become today what the longed-for English cottage perennial border was, you know, 10 years ago. And people are buying books to find out how they can grow stuff that they can eat to feed their families, their communities. Obviously, this has something to do with the current economic conditions, but it also has a lot to do with the ever-rising concern with with the environment and also with the... the, um, the purity or safety even of the things we eat. I hope uh, that those publishers and the authors, well, I hope they tell the truth because that's that's what's damaged garden books in the past, especially when we get yes. so many dumped on the market that really do not pay off what they promise to deliver, and it's very disappointing. And, and having a vegetable garden, it's a swell idea, but it's not as easy as one, two, three. You, you really have exactly. to invest in it. It, it can all too easily be bait and switch. I mean, whether or not these people will stick with what they're buying the books to learn about is a big question because, of course, a lot of people's eyes are a lot bigger than um, their, their gardening <laughs> gloves are. Yes. <laughs> Mixed metaphors. Uh, but, yes, that, of course, the sustainability of the sustainable garden from the standpoint of the people who have to do the gardening is a big, <laughs> big question. Well, we just have a, another minute or so left, so you were going to say something about publishing Well, I was going to media. say that yeah. another area of things that I think are continuing to do well and I hope will do well is books uh, is the kind of book like ours that really is about a deeper understanding of a subject because I find myself like everybody else going to the internet more and more for the kind of thing I would have looked up in a reference book a few mm-hmm. years ago mm-hmm. you know the height of a plant at maturity or you know what kind of um, soil condition something likes but I still go to books to get the uh, a sense of what a, a really experienced gardeners exper- uh, it, 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 le- what they have learned from gardening themselves, what ideas, what inspiration they might have to give me, not just a pretty picture, but a deeper understanding, as you say, of the realities of, of taking care of a garden, of keeping it going, and of s- sustaining your own interest in it, too, so that you want to keep at it. And that, I think, is an area, you know, whether it's a book of essays, a memoir, a book about someone going through the garden year uh, and how they have adapted their own garden to the necessities, sometimes the hardships of their climate or their own way of life. We don't all have endless time to putter in our gardens. That kind of thing, I think, is still a book that people who will buy books at all, which, of course, you know, that presumes a certain amount of uh, loose change in the pocket, <laughs> but that those people will, will continue to buy even as the Internet takes over in other areas. Well, Another thing is pictures on the Internet, the quality of photography still has, doesn't quite rival completely what you can get in a really beautifully produced And book. what you can hold in your hand and stroke and, with and your hand. Gardeners and... love, uh, gardeners are very touch-conscious people. They like tangible things. They'd rather have a real flower than a, a, you know, a silk one or a plastic or a one, even though it's hard to get. And so... <laughs> they want to have a book they can hold and keep. They want to have something that they can really feel. Well, and and you're talking about sharing someone's personality and the information, and it's wonderful. 
But thank you so much for being my guest, Doug. It's been terrific, and I really enjoyed the book, and I'm glad we had a chance to talk about it. And I can't wait to talk to Stephen about Rose Care. Which he has we'll a lot to, to tell you. He's, He's only the best. Only the best. Thanks again. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Only the best. Well, it is fun to know who grows in your garden, and it was great for Doug to share some of those names with us. How about Maiden's Blush, Thigh of an Aroused Nymph? I can't imagine saying, oh, uh, take a look at my beautiful thigh of an aroused nymph blooming over there by the by the fence. Or uh, Three Drunks from Yao Yang, or Blaze of Glory, or uh, American Beauty, of course. Happy Butt, how about that for a name? Lady Godiva, and who could forget Queen Elizabeth? Now, that's actually a pretty good rose, and probably in every public rose garden in America. That's uh, another one of those real tried-and-true bloomers everywhere. But there's uh, plenty of names that come to us in the garden, common names, and even the Latin names. Uh, Who were these plants named for? Why were they named? Why Why was a plant named Drunkard's Dream? Well, you know, someday maybe I'll tell you. Stephen Scaniello will be our guest next week, and he's not going to tell you about Drunkard's Dream, but he's going to tell you about some other great things. He's going to tell you about the Brooklyn Botanic Cranford Rose Garden, where he was the rosarian, the rose curator for, I think, nearly 20 years, and also rose care and some organic tips, too, for rose care. So join us next week on Ken Drew's Real Dirt, The Garden Show. The Garden Show.